Hi, I'm Lisa Smith Henderson, and I'm your host for Alma Am I Racist? If you want to know more about Alma and how the podcast came to be, go to our website, almaamiracist.com, and there you can find other podcasts as well. I'm delighted to have back with me today Dr. Rodney Sadler. Now, Dr. Sadler is a graduate of the HBCU Howard University. He got his PhD from Duke University, and he is now the director of the Center for Social Justice and Reconciliation at Union Presbyterian Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he's also an associate professor there. So, Dr. Sadler, when we think of reconciliation, my mind also goes to reparations. How will it be determined who gets reparations? Yes, I think that this is one of the uh, the inherent problems with the notion of reparations. And though I believe in reparations, I believe that there is necessarily money that needs to be paid uh, to people who've suffered from abuse over the years. I think the calculation of who receives what and how much is much more complex than it needs to be. So for me, I've been less interested in reparations in terms of uh, a financial number, because frankly, there can be no number. How do you pay for uh, tens of millions of lives lost in the Middle Passage? How do you atone for the fact that you've lost tens of millions of our ancestors were killed and died prematurely, were raped, were abused? How do you make amends for that with a financial number? How do you make amends for uh, 200 plus years of labor uh, that was taken from people for free? How do you make up for, uh, for that? And then how do you make up for what it cost people to live in a racialized society when people have had to struggle, to suffer, to do without just because of the color of their skin? Uh, it's very difficult to put a number on the amount of, uh, the amount of pain that that costs. Uh, w- recently, there was a, a ruling that said that the family for Breonna Taylor should receive $12 million as sort of compensation for the taking of her life by the, uh, the police officers that came and took her life. And the point is that it still doesn't bring her back. And it's wonderful that the family now has more money, but it can never compensate for the loss that they experienced. So if we gave every African-American enough money to be a Kardashian right now, it still wouldn't stop a white cop from shooting them when they drove out of the driveway the same day. Uh, Until we change that base ideology about the issue of race, until we can begin to shift the way that people feel about people of different color, blackness, whiteness uh, is still an operant thing, uh, and we will continue to find issues of disadvantage in our community. So the issue isn't really, let's just pay money and be done with it. The issue really goes to more of the heart of the matter of how to address how did we get here and acknowledging the truth? I'd say that in part the issue is that we have to acknowledge the truth, that we live in a full-on system that has many systemic manifestations that continue to perpetuate injustice and imbalance, that we can't just fix police without fixing health care, and we can't just fix health care without fixing education, and we can't just fix education without fixing employment, and we can't just fix employment, and so on and so on and so on. All of these issues have been impacted by the issue of race. All of these have played a role in the, dare I say, the denigration, which is a, a horrible term, the denigration of black and brown folks. All of these systems need to be transformed and 
changed uh, in order to make an America that's more just, more fair, and more equitable. And until we do that, we'll continue to live with the aftermath of this horrid idea called race. And the, the same group of the book club that I was telling you about, you know, there are times where we've all been, what are we doing? What, like, we don't know what to do next. And my feeling is we do the next right thing. We continue to Amen. learn. We continue to reach out. We continue to find where do we fit in and what's our passion. Like my passion yeah. is communicating. I love asking questions and learning and then conveying that knowledge where a lot of the people in this book club, they're educators. So they want to be able to go in to the school system. So does that make sense? Because, and, and this is really what white people are looking for. And I'm not asking you to give us all the answers, you know, in, oh, no, I don't no. know, 10 minutes, but in at least... Minutes. Yeah. yeah. Get, tell us, yeah. like, what would you say the best thing that a white person who means well right now could do to help become an anti-racist or to help the movement? I love it. Thank you for the question. And uh, it's not an easy question, but let's struggle with uh, some potential answers for it. So the first thing I think we need to do is become educated. We need to realize what's going on and why race has been so... Uh, as, such an intractable issue in our nation for as long as it has been. So we need to recognize uh, that we have a horrid racial past, that it was not by mistake that these racial disparities uh, exist, but it was by design. We have a system that was predicated on giving advantage to some people and taking advantage from other people. So that's the first thing that we have to acknowledge, that America was never the meritocracy that we thought it was, i.e. if you work hard, you will inevitably thrive because some people worked as hard as they possibly could, worked themselves to death, and were never able to uh, achieve the, the richness of the promise of the American dream. And that was, again, by design in this racialized society. The second thing, after you started to get educated, say, why don't you begin to engage with people across the racial line? There are a lot of ways to begin engaging. Your congregation can engage with another congregation. Uh, you can develop friendships. We had a program in Charlotte a, year, a few years ago called Friday Friends. And what Friday Friends was, was an opportunity to meet over a six month period of time with somebody that was very different from you, often once a month, maybe twice a month for a lunch on a Friday. And you just start to share a little bit about who you are, about your background. And then once you go through the first couple of weeks and you have a relationship that's starting, then you begin to ask indelicate questions, things you always wanted to know but were afraid to ask. And then hopefully by the time the six months, the month is up, you will have had a friend that you've developed some trust with. You can engage with each other's families uh, and you can begin to move forward. But that relational part, I think, is a next, uh, is a next natural step uh, in the larger evolution. Then beyond that, I think we have to begin to learn how to work together. So find a group that's actually doing something good. I know that many people talk about reading groups and um, book groups and uh, they're good places to start. But how about groups that begin to work on fostering change together? So, for example, if you realize that there are significant inequalities in a local African-American school, why not develop a mentoring program in that school? Why not spend some time developing mentors that are part of your social network that can help transform the lives of the people who are in that school system? Then begin to look at the larger system. What are some things that can be done that, would, that might equalize the ability of the PTA in the small, uh, less well-affluent African
African-American school that have the same advantages as the affluent white school in your own neighborhood? How do we begin to balance out so that opportunities for education and opportunities for growth are balanced across these lines? And then once you've begun to uh, do that initial level of work, once you start to have greater networks of people who are working towards greater social change and greater racial justice, then begin to work. Look for one of those larger groups that's at work in your city, that's doing things like anti-racism training, and become a partner in that. Begin to bring your own people into participation in that. Work with a group that's looking at examining the social structures of education, healthcare, uh, whatever, uh, and begin to work towards change in that regard. I have a, a good friend who's a white woman here in Charlotte who lives in a very affluent neighborhood with very few African-Americans, if any, who was disturbed by the fact that her white neighbors had no understanding of the racial divide, had no understanding of the fact that blacks were, it's not that blacks weren't in their neighborhood because they didn't want to be, but they couldn't afford to be. So she started a group uh, that was an examination of whiteness. And they, she brought in speakers, she read books with folks, she provided educational opportunities, she opened up social media where people could have their questions answered. And it became a way of really engaging white America from a comfortable space in a, a way that might foster larger change. One woman with one idea who said, I'm just gonna try to help however I can. And look what she was able to accomplish. I think we all need to recognize that we all have a role to play in fostering racial, uh, fostering the end of race and the social change that we need to see. And we all need to wake up and recognize uh, that we have to step up to the plate. We may not be guilty for creating a racist system, but we're all responsible for doing something about it once we recognize that it exists. Well, and that therein lies my next question. This denial that there's a problem to me is a big part of the problem. I have friends who I would consider to be moderate to progressive who say, I had one friend call me and she said, because she knows I go to a black church and have black friends. She said, educate me on this. Is it really true that there are more black people that are getting sick and dying from COVID? And I was like, yes. Why do you not believe it? Well, it just doesn't make sense to me. Explain it to me. So I did, but I thought this is somebody, somebody very savvy. And then yeah. what I'm running into is, you know, people thinking, I've literally had friends in other countries say, I see your wife's gone off the deep end to my husband. <laughs> because of, well, you that, know. Yes, yeah, certainly. So uh, let me say that one of the best things that race ever did was to pretend that it was not present or significant. Uh, the fact that race is able to hide in plain sight. Race is literally that which obscures the imbalances and the differences uh, that we see as people's outcomes in life. So uh, we live in a, I, uh, I'm, I'm going to use Charlotte as an In the city of Charlotte, you're able to drive through, get sites in the city, the football stadium, the, the baseball diamond, the, the basketball arena, the theater, the Blumenthal in Uptown. You're able to go to all of these wonderful places and never see African-American poverty. If you did not look forward, you would think that all of Charlotte is affluent and all of Charlotte is doing well because it's no, there's no evident poverty. The thing is that poverty is hidden in plain sight in, in black and brown neighborhoods. The city of Charlotte is so racially divided that we've got something called the Crescent, which is the black and brown area outside of the uptown area. 
uh, and the wedge, which is the, the area from uptown all the way down to the southern portions of the city, which is incredibly wealthy and more than 80% white. The Crescent is more than 70% black and brown. In essence, what goes on in Charlotte is white and black people can live their entire lives without ever having to come into contact with each other. And uh, you can go through the whole city. All the highways are geared to get you to the places that are more affluent and more beautiful, not to get you to places that black and brown poor people live, which means that they also have limited access there as well. The way that we are able to keep the racialized system in place is we don't get to see the inequality that exists all around us. We never have to see it. And you can live in a white affluent bubble and never know this is taking place. And you can live with the myth of the meritocracy in your head, i.e. that if I work hard, inevitably, I will succeed, I will be able to pull myself up without even a consideration of the racial dimensions there and how race has handicapped people. All of these things sort of support the notion that race must be real. And then the other thing is, uh, that other uh, thing that hides the disparities in plain sight is there's almost an assumption in the American context that black people live where? Where do black people live? Ghetto. In the ghetto. That's where black people live, in the ghetto. It's sort of the natural state for them. So we assume when we see black people in the ghetto, well, that's all right. That's where we expect for black people to live. Instead of saying, it's not right that anybody lives in an underserved community that's over-policed, that is struggling with uh, epidemics of drugs because it's the best place to sell drugs because the police chase people out of uh, wealthy white neighborhoods. It is the assumption of the normalcy of the current situation that helps to exacerbate the racial divisions between us. And the more we can begin to break beyond that, to hear people's stories, to understand that race is not the natural, uh, race and racial division is not our natural state, but it's something that has been thrust upon us in this American context. It's only then that we can begin to step outside of that box and begin to say, we need to do something different. Well, and I think all you need to do is look at little children. They don't know the difference. It's a playmate, regardless of, they might be a little alarmed if they've never seen, if a white child's never seen a black child, a black child might be alarmed if they've never seen a white child. But getting past that, if we can all go back to this little children look and what is that like? I'll tell you something else, Dr. Sadler, that really strikes me is the denialism that you were talking about. I've likened it to alcoholism. It's only a disease that tells you you don't have it. And it seems to me that racism is similar. Yes, it really is. Uh, Racism is a disease that people have that they believe that they don't have. There's a persistence of denial. And that's the way that it thrives. It thrives on denial. It lives on the fact that you don't don't have it. Oh, my God, at least I'm not a racist like those guys that wear hoods and stand in the streets chanting in, in, in Charlottesville. At least I'm not like that. Uh, while it masks the fact that many people are living not only in this racialized system, but they're benefiting from this racialized system. They're taking taking great advantage from this racialized system, and they just don't seem to recognize the consequence on other people. I thought I was relatively enlightened, and I realized how little I know, and this is very embarrassing to admit, but much of what I learned about Black history came from my children doing projects for Black History Month until my recent learning. And this is what is such a problem, but people don't want to hear it because it is uncomfortable. It's wonderful that you have had encounters that enabled you to see beyond that which is in front of you, to see beyond a world that is primarily 
white and where racialized, race has been normalized. But so many other people, even if they have such experiences, don't take advantage of them as moments for change. They just sort of allow them to exist and they slip into the ether. Oh, I did, you did this project on, uh, on Thurgood Marshall and, oh, that was wonderful. We learned a little something about it. Let's go on about our lives and let's pretend that we, uh, we never had to deal with this issue. There's a, a very deep psychological reason why I think it's hard for those people who believe themselves to be white and entitled to the privilege that they have. I think there's a reason why they want to be in denial. It is okay. a very painful thing. It is a very painful thing to wake up and recognize that all of these things that I thought I earned in life may be in part accrued to me because of the color of my skin and because of the opportunities that I was enabled to have that someone else wasn't able to have. And once you start to deal with the fact that, oh my God, what if I have been a beneficiary of a system that has harmed somebody else? Oh my God, what if I'm complicit in the harm that is attended to somebody else? It really does damage your psyche. Uh, the notion of white guilt and white fragility come in at these points in time. Oh, I, I can't imagine this. I, I'm a good person. I, I, I'm not a racist. I, I don't want to say that I participate in the system where, no, actually, all along you have participated in this larger system, and it has had an impact on uh, your ability to thrive in life. Uh, so it is difficult for many people to recognize and to accept the fact that they have uh, benefited in significant ways from this racialized system. But if, if we can admit it, then we can begin to change it. And I think it's, I mean, it's just like being an alcoholic. We got to admit it first and then begin to look at it and then to begin to take our inventory, so to speak, and then begin to make amends for what we've done, either knowingly or unknowingly. Uh-huh, certainly. I think I feel very blessed, and you're in Charlotte. Atlanta has a lot of Black people, so there is a lot of opportunity. A lot of the women in this book club are in the Midwest, and... One friend of mine who actually started the book club grew up in Montana and is married to a black man. She never saw a black person in her life until she was 17. Wow. And a lot of these people, they don't have a way to do it. And now, and I think what you're saying is the woman that was in the affluent neighborhood said, okay, I'm going to start talking about this and the churches going back and forth. So there are ways to do it. That's a cop-out. There's a black person somewhere, everywhere. There's right? always one. But, but no, but there's always opportunities for engagement. Uh, we live in America now, so there are always opportunities for you to begin your own personal study. Uh, everybody can uh, gain access to Tana Hasey Coates, Between the World and Me, to Tim Wise's White Like Me. Uh, everyone can begin to delve into uh, the larger understanding of what is whiteness and how is this idea constructed? Is it an ethnic group or is it a category of oppression within the larger system? Do I want to be considered white or do I want to be considered something different, maybe woke, i.e. I have a cognizance of my own understanding of the larger racialized world and I'm someone who's going to work against that benefit and that privilege. Those are the kinds of things that need to take place and they can take place anywhere. But because we have such great access, there's anybody that can go on the internet any day and find not just videos I've done, but videos that other people have done to talk about race and uh, racial disparity and racial difference and become educated. So we live in an age where that education is possible for all of us. 
and because we, we live in a uh, world of Zoom, anybody can engage in conversation across Zoom, across FaceTime or Facebook Live, uh, and find out who people are, begin to engage with people across difference, even in the midst of a pandemic, and then begin to find a way to develop sincere relationships that might be the basis of a larger group that can work towards social change. Can we end on a spiritual note? Please. So if we were going to look at this as a spiritual endeavor and from the greatest commandment theology of loving our neighbors as ourselves and moving outside of the box of as long as it doesn't affect me directly, it doesn't matter. How do we do that in a, in a spiritual context? Well, I think that we have to begin to re-examine our scriptures uh, and recognize that the Bible, a Christian Judeo, a Christian Jew or Muslim part of the Abrahamic tradition, does give us a good basis for reimagining who we are as human beings. Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27 really does uh, confirm for us the need that, to recognize that every human being equally bears God's image in themselves. And if we don't love others uh, who are different from us, there's a piece of God that we're not loving. Leviticus 19:18b says that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. What about your black neighbor, your brown neighbor? How do you begin to engage them? What about your Muslim neighbor? How do you begin to reach across that difference to your Jewish neighbor? How do you begin to recognize that all of them are subject to the same love that we have for ourselves? Uh, and, and by love, I don't mean a warm, fuzzy feeling. Uh, love in the Hebrew Bible, ahab, really does mean uh, doing good on behalf of someone. So uh, when you say love your neighbor as yourself, it really means do that good for the other that you would do for yourself. If you're hungry, what do you do? You eat. You're thirsty, what do you do? You drink. So if someone else is hungry, if someone else is thirsty, if someone else is without clothing, if someone else is, is without home, do those things that you would do for yourself for them. And if we begin to do that, if we utilize this biblical calculus, we can see really what the Bible was intending to do. It was intending to create a world in which everyone had their needs taken care of, where everyone had enough in order to survive, where all God's children were at peace because of this. And if we could begin to manifest this, it hurts me as Christian community that we often think about these as minor suggestions or Jesus didn't really mean this when he said this. Jesus didn't really mean in um, Matthew 25, 31 through 46, that whatever you do to the least of these, uh, the way that you treat the homeless person, the hungry person, the poor person, the black person, is the way that you treat me. Jesus must not have really meant that. No, Jesus did mean it. And if we are part of the followers of Jesus, we need to manifest that in the way that we live our lives in this world as well. Why don't we let Jesus outside of our churches and Jesus wild in our communities to destroy broken systems and challenge broken ways of relating or failing to relate to others and allow Jesus to help us become whole and to become uh, united and to become, what is that word that Paul used? If you are in Christ, there is no longer Jew nor Gentile. We've obliterated issues of race. There's no longer slave or free. We've obliterated issues of class. There's no longer male and female. We've obliterated the preference given to males in the midst of society. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. We are one. If we can begin to live into the Christian ideal, we will recognize our oneness. And we will begin to, to say that what happens to you happens to me. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. 
I can't be well if you are hurt and not whole. Uh, we can begin to see this kind of thing and we can begin to change. Well, and I also wonder if there's not a piece of it that by loving other people, we love ourselves more as well, that maybe some of this holdback is we're not willing to love ourselves enough to say, I'm broken, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I need help. So that maybe by doing that, reaching out to the other side, we begin to heal ourselves in a way. I think we do. Uh, we begin to heal ourselves, not just in an individual sense, but in a larger corporate sense. Our collective self, I think, is ruptured now in a way that needs to be made whole. Our society clearly is broken. As we look at politics today, we look at the news, we can see how fractured we are as a community. We need a way to find our way back to each other, to see each other as expressions of God, to love each other because of that, and to find a new way to deal with each other as one. I will remain hopeful the way you put that, <laughs> that we, we can find a way forward from this division. Dr. Sadler, you rock. Thank you so much. You're so kind. Uh, it's good to be with you today, Lisa, and uh, I pray that all goes well. Dr. Rodney Sadler, our guest today, who is the director of the Center for Social Justice and Reconciliation at Union Presbyterian Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's also an activist and a, a great podcast guest. So thanks for joining us. We hope you'll be with us again next week for another episode of Alma, Am I Racist? If you want to know more about the podcast and how it got started and who Alma is, check out our website, almaamiracist.com. Thanks for listening.